You are listening to the podcast of First Baptist Church of Sevierville, where our mission is helping people move from their point of need to hope in Christ. For more information about our church, head on over to sevier.church. Today's sermon, The Backstory, is part one in the series, The Afters, shared by Senior Pastor Dan Spencer. Thank you so much to our choir, all of our instrumentalists today. Thank you, Pastor Scott, uh, for leading us and for carrying this pulpit to the middle of the platform. Uh, he does that too. Well, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please find uh, two places today, Psalm 51 and then 2 Samuel chapter 11. Psalm 51, 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we start something new this morning. And let me begin in this way. There is a fundamental difference between the church and the world that has never been clearer than it is today in America. And here's the difference. The world believes that human beings can only flourish if people are allowed to live in whatever way they choose to live. in other words, if, if people are just set free from the rules and, and guidelines and morality to live whatever way feels right to them, whatever feels good to them, uh, only then will people be set free uh, to flourish and to live the way that they want to live. That's really the idea behind what is called Pride Month that every lifestyle should be celebrated and encouraged so that people can be what they want to be, whether that lifestyle is at odds with God's word or not. But the church is different because we hold to the authority of Scripture. And we believe, based on God's word, that the only way human beings can flourish And to be all that God has made us to be is if we live our lives according to his word. And if we find, as we live that way, if we find or when we find that our desires and our feelings are at odds with God's word, we do not say we need to change God's word and update it to suit how we now feel. Instead, what we do when we find ourselves at odds with the Word of God is that we humble ourselves and we acknowledge our sin and we seek the forgiveness that was bought for us on the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, that idea has been heavy on my heart for the last couple of weeks uh, because I believe that this is not only true for me, but for, I think, many members of First Baptist Church who may be opposed to the things of the world. We may get mad at sin in the world, and yet our own pride has kept us from getting honest with God about our own sins and our own struggles. And the good news is, That because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the great grace of God that we've sung about this morning, that 
many of us are just one honest prayer away from revival. Many of us are just one honest prayer away from personal revival. To really be honest with God, one honest prayer. We find a model of such a prayer in Psalm 51. And I'm going to give you just a sampling of this this morning. Psalm 51 is actually a prayer, and it's one of those psalms that God gave to us so that we can give it back to Him as we pray this psalm. So let's begin reading in verse 1. The psalmist writes, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me, Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. This prayer continues in verse 7 with these words. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. In the month of June, we're going to take a deep dive into this amazing prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. Uh, But today, let's just focus on this, who wrote it and why? Who wrote it And why? And we find the answer in the little title uh, in small letters at the beginning of verse 1 of this psalm. Look at what it says. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So David wrote this. After he had gone into Bathsheba. After. That's a big word, after. A lot had happened to get to that point where it says after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And so I'm titling this series of sermons, The Afters. What do you do in the afters of life? We know what to do in the befores of life. Before temptation, before the pressure is on to sin, we know what we ought to do in the befores. We know that uh, we should pray for strength before. We know that we ought to put on the armor of God to protect us before we are tempted. We know that we should obey God's word before. But what about the afters? What about the aftermath of our sin? What do you do after you fail? What do you do after you fall? What do you do after 
You do the thing that you promised God a thousand times you wouldn't do again. What do you do after you sin? And so we're going to read the backstory today that's alluded to in the title of this psalm. We're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and read the backstory because it shows us how David handled the afters after he sinned. And it's a negative example. It tells us what not to do because what we're going to find is that after David sinned, he tried to conceal it. He tried to make it disappear. He created an elaborate cover story for his sin and he blame shifted what he had done. And the results were tragic and deadly. And then in the next few weeks, we're going to see in Psalm 51 how to handle the afters in the right way. A way that leads to healing and repentance and revival. Uh, but today, 2 Samuel ver, uh, chapters 11 and 12, this is an episode in David's life that I'm sure he wished he could have deleted. And yet it's preserved in Scripture for us to learn from. And so let's begin in chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11, verse one. The Bible says it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him and all Israel. The, the whole army's gone out and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, it's not clear if David was shirking his responsibility or if he had a good reason that he was not with the army. What we do know is that by staying in Jerusalem, David was setting himself up to be in a dangerous situation. Verse 2, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, uh, if Bathsheba was at fault, the Bible doesn't say it. We know that uh, she bears a, at least part of the blame. But that's not the focus here. The focus of the biblical writer is squarely on King David. We have to assume here that David bears, uh, if not all, most of the responsibility for what happened. He was the person with all the power. He was the person with all the authority in this situation. And David knew full well that Bathsheba was the daughter of one of his best fighters, a man named Eliam. He knew that Bathsheba was the granddaughter of one of his most trusted advisors, a man named Ahithophel. We know that David knew that 
Bathsheba was the wife. She was married. She was the wife of one of David's inner circle of uh, honorable soldiers, a man by the name of Uriah, who was away fighting in the battle. Knowing all that, David sent for Bathsheba anyway. He slept with her, and then he sent her home after he got what he wanted. Sometime after their meeting, Bathsheba informed David that she was pregnant. And so at this point, David knows that he has sinned. He knows that that sin has consequences. But watch how David tries to deal with his sin. In verse 6, Then David sent to Joab, his general, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. Remember, that's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, uh, Uriah, take some time off. Go spend some time at home with your wife. David's hope is that they would do what married couples do and spend the night together. And then David could blame the pregnancy on Uriah. So the Bible says Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him, kind of a romantic dinner. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, why? Uriah refused to do it knowing that all of his comrades were in the battle. And he said, I'm not going to do that. When they're fighting, I'm not going to go and act like there's not a war going on. And so it turns out that Uriah had more honor than King David. David tries again the next night. This time he gets Uriah drunk, sends him home. Still, Uriah shows himself to be more honorable. And so when that did not work, verse 14 says, In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Down in verse 26, the Bible says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The most devious thing I think about David's cover story is that he ended up bringing Bathsheba into his home and looking like the good guy who's having pity on this widow 
and who is helping to raise what others believed was another man's son. Months pass, the baby is born, and David thinks he's dodged the bullet, that it's all behind him. He, he took care of the problem. But when David least expects it, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront his sin. In chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, and, and listen to the story that Nathan tells to David. David does not know if it is false or true, if it's a news report or if this is just an illustration. We know that Nathan is just telling a story that he made up or that God gave him to prove a point. Here's the story. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. This was a, a beloved pet. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. In other words, I want to have a barbecue for this guest who came, but I don't want to use anything, any of my uh, flock, my sheep, my goats or whatever. But he took from the poor man's, he took the poor man's lamb, his pet, and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so what we find is David, who had not been upset, brokenhearted, Angry about his own sin up to this point of adultery and, and deception and homicide. Now David gets upset about lamb chops and, and this imaginary pet. And now David's all been out of shape and calling for justice when he has not even owned up to his own sin. In verse 7, Nathan drops the bomb. He said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Through the prophet, God pronounces judgment, negative consequences for David's sin. And then God makes this statement in verse 12. He said, for you did it secretly. That is, David, your sin was done in secret. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In other words, what you did in the dark, I'm going to bring it to light. And so finally, David's heart is broken and he admits it in verse 13. David said to Nathan, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, verse 13, when David at long last, in this ordeal that lasted the better part of a year, finally David has this moment of honesty where he confesses that sin and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And that's what led David to write Psalm 51. If you double click on verse 13, what you get is Psalm 51. We're going to return to that Psalm next Sunday. But for today, I want to give you three biblical principles that are brought out in the backstory of Psalm 51. There are three biblical principles we can see in action. And I want to share these with you because not only are they going to help us understand what happened with David, but also it'll help us to understand what always happens when we sin and refuse to repent. Principle number one is the Genesis 4-7 principle, and that is that sin will master the unguarded heart. Sin will master the unguarded heart. Listen to what God said in Genesis 4-7. God said, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you or to master you, but you must rule over it. Now, that's what the Lord told Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, when Cain was so angry and jealous of his brother Abel. He would soon murder Abel in his anger. And the Lord said to him, Cain, be careful. Sin is crouching at your door. It's going to master you, but you must rule over it. You can't have victory over this sin, but you better watch out. I think what the Lord was telling him was this. Cain, you have put yourself into a situation because of your anger, your bitterness, your rage against your brother. You put yourself in a situation where sin can easily pounce on you and dominate your life and do a lot of damage to your family. Don't let that happen. Don't let sin find a foothold in your life and end up mastering you. And this is a principle that's still at work today, isn't it? For every one of us. Sin is still crouching at our door every day, every morning when we wake up. Satan is there with temptation tailor-made for each of us to distract us and attack us and destroy and do the kind of damage that sin did in King David's life. All because of one unguarded moment. We have to be on guard because sin will master the unguarded heart. This is where David finds himself that night on the rooftop of his palace. Question. What could David have done differently 
that night on the roof when he saw Bathsheba? What could David have done in that moment to guard his heart? Well, uh, David could have stayed in bed with his own wife. He had more than one. He didn't have to get up in the middle of the night and go creeping on his neighbors. David could have stayed in bed and taken care of his own commitment and loyalty to his own wife. But instead his mind wandered and he put himself in a dangerous situation by not just staying put. I like what Adrian Rogers said. He said, if you're tired of falling down, then stop walking in slippery places. Don't put yourself in that situation. Uh, Another thing David could have done is, you remember David was a worship leader. He was a musician. He was a singer, a songwriter. David could have reached over grabbed his harp and begun to play and sing something familiar that would lift up his thoughts toward God and and focus his attention on the God who loved him. But instead, his heart was unguarded. His mind was unguarded and he began to wander. When David got up and walked on his roof and he saw Bathsheba and was confronted with that temptation, he could have called on the Lord in prayer. Some prayer like this. Lord, I'm about to do something stupid. Help me. I think that's a prayer God always answers. Lord, help me to not do this. He could have prayed. David could have called a friend. Surely there was somebody whose door he could have knocked on in the middle of the night and said, dude, I'm battling temptation right now. Help me before I do something I'm going to regret. And yet, David's heart was unguarded and he fell to temptation. Here's what we need to remember. This is the Genesis 4-7 principle. That if you don't have a plan to guard your heart before you're faced with temptation and you will be faced with temptation. If you don't have a plan to guard your heart before that happens, don't expect to win the battle in the heat of the moment because sin is crouching at your door and it will master the unguarded heart. Principle number two is this, the Proverbs 28, 13 principle. And that is, our attempts to cover sin will always fail. Our attempts to cover sin will always fail. Proverbs 28, 13 says it very plainly. He who covers his sins will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Think about all the ways David tried to cover his sin, calling Uriah home, getting him drunk, sending the kill order to Uriah's commander. For David, covering his sin ended up compounding his sin. It just got worse and worse. And and David's cover job 
may have kept him out of the hot seat for a while, but it didn't make his sin go away, did it? And so whatever else David did that year, whether it was ruling his government, spending time with his family, even singing a worship song, whatever else David did during that year was was somewhat tainted by the sin that he had covered and, and hindered by the sin that he was harboring in his life that was keeping him bound and, and keeping him from being able to live the life that God had for him to live. And the same thing's true with us, isn't it? Whenever we sin and then try to keep it a secret, make excuses for it, shift the blame onto somebody else, minimize the sin by comparing it to somebody else's greater sin, none of that covering will make sin go away. Proverbs 28, 13 promises us that whoever covers their sin will not prosper. It's not going to get us where we think it's going to get us. Sin doesn't need our covering. Sin needs forgiveness. And that comes from only one source. It turns out the sins that we try to cover, eventually God will uncover. That's what happened in David's life. The third principle is this, and that is the 1 John 1, 9 principle, that only honest confession of sin leads to cleansing. If you don't have 1 John 1, 9 committed to memory, you ought to memorize that verse. I cannot tell you how many thousands of times I have quoted that verse in a prayer. When God convicts me of some horrible attitude, some harsh word I've given to somebody, when he convicts me of some problem in my heart or in my behavior, and I come face to face with that, I can't tell you how many times in prayer I've said, Lord, I'm claiming that verse, 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sin, you're faithful and just, and you will forgive my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Thank God for the truth of 1 John 1, 9. And may we never get it twisted that forgiveness and cleansing of our sin comes only, only, only through honest confession of that sin. When David was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin, he did the only right thing, and that is he confessed it. He owned it. He admitted it. Yes, I have sinned against the Lord. David did the first honest thing he had done in this whole ordeal. And in that moment, there was no more covering up. There was no more pretending. David admitted it. And then I want you to notice in verse 13 that forgiveness followed. David said... I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now there would still be 
consequences David would have to live with. But the guilt was gone. And forgiveness came. And that meant David could be right with God again. I want you to imagine David in that moment. Nathan, and I picture him pointing his finger in David's face. Nathan says, you are the man. And David, in that moment, had a decision to make. And I think many of us are in that moment of decision even today. As God brings to light sins that we have covered secret acts of ungodliness that we have hidden from everyone but Him. People we have hurt and then made excuses for doing it. Anger that we have nurtured. And the truth is only honest confession of that sin can lead to cleansing That's why I say revival could be just one honest prayer away for many of us. Revival could just be one honest prayer away for you. Let's stand together and have a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I, I want to I want to admit my conviction all week long of finding myself getting upset about things that go on in our culture and in, in our even our community being disgusted with uh, the consequences of sin in other people's lives, wondering how in the world can they do what they do when, like David, I've minimized my own bad attitudes and my own disobedience and my own sin. God, forgive me. And I pray for the grace for us just to be honest today with you. I pray for that guy who has been trying to cover his sin. And yet he finds himself miserable sitting here today. God, I pray for that moment of honesty like King David had of saying to you, Lord, I have sinned against you. And I thank you, Lord, for the, the forgiveness that's going to follow that confession and that repentance. I pray for the young lady here today who's been harboring bitterness in her heart and it's eating away like a cancer. I pray that today would be the day 
that she has that moment of honesty with you and says, Lord, you have revealed this to me and now I'm confessing it. And I thank you, Lord, for the the cleansing and the forgiveness that's going to follow that confession today. Lord, I pray for that person who is lost in their sin and they've never come to you as a lost sinner and just admitted it. God, I'm a sinner. I deserve death and hell. I ask you to forgive me and save me. Lord, I I pray that this would be their moment when they confess to you their sin and receive your grace and salvation. We pray, God, you would work in us. I pray for revival in individual hearts and in marriages and in families because of being honest with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and share. And if you want a pastor to follow up with you regarding today's message, reach out to us at severe.church slash follow up. Thanks again for joining us on the First Baptist Church Severeville podcast.